prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We're grateful for another day, a good night's rest, all the many graces that you give us that we're not even aware of. Now, Father, we, we ask you to open our eyes to our need, both of forgiveness and to forgive. We ask that you bless this time, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, it's been several years since I've been standing before you and having the opportunity to teach in adult Sunday school. I've been in training, extensive training for several years, teaching the uh, six, seven, and eight-year-olds in Sunday school. Now, they can, they can ask some difficult questions. The thing that I'd like to say before we begin, just a comment, and, and Ken touched on it. When we teach books like this in Sunday school, and honestly, even when we re read books, even by trusted authors, we always use God's word as our filter in how we accept, filter out how we examine life and books, and even by authors that we may trust. And he, Ken mentioned that several uh, weeks ago. So I just give us that admonition as we go through all of these things, because only God's word is infallible. All of us are. And so we have to understand that as we go through all of these things. In forgive, this lesson, we're going to explore the cultural conflict over forgiveness, the definition of forgiveness and current models of forgiveness, the cultural pressures as seen in specific examples for forgiveness, and the background beliefs and assumptions that sort of underpin some of these uh, models, and then a community as aspect and a contrast of forgiveness. In 2006, Tarana Burke, she was a survivor of sexual assault, coined the term Me Too to help women who had been similarly abused to speak out. But in 2017, the movement went viral, ignited by the revelations of Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse allegations and eventually conviction. Many women found support during the first few months of their movement, <clears throat> enabling them to come forward with their revelations and revealed the kind of behavior that was far more pervasive in our culture than we would like to admit. And in the wake of the movement, the issue of forgiveness, of course, sort of surfaced in all of this. Now, Salma Hayek, which is the lady next to Dr. Weinstein or Mr. Weinstein there, she was an actress, of course, and of course one of Dr. Weinstein, or Mr. Weinstein's victims. She had rationalized her silence about his sexual harassment, and she was even proud of it, that she had the capacity to forgive. But later she actually just said it was a cover for her cowardice. 
and to, public, to, to publicly seek justice. And in the end, she had failed to protect, protect future victims. Now, Daniel Barron, actually, in an opinion page from the New York Times, said, should we forgive men who assault us? And of course, she concluded that she was not ready to forgive her assailant because she was also a victim of sexual abuse. But she said that she might forgive them if restitution was made both public and privately. And then the responses from her article were varied and great. It stated, instead of talking about one of the respondents said, instead of talking about the victims who must forgive, instead we should be talking about the victims who must forgive. Uh, instead, we should be talking about tattooing the words rapist or sexual predator on the foreheads of the criminals. This would actually help make women and children safer. Now the question is, what lies behind this conflict over forgiveness? Diana Ortiz, she was a nun. She was kidnapped, tortured, and raped by members of the Guatemalan military. Of course, once the captors discovered that she was actually an American, they released her and gave her a stern warning to be a good nun and forgive. Even the government, her friends, and even strangers wanted her to forgive. Why? Diana said, quote, they wanted me to forgive so that they could move on. I suppose once I forgave, all would be well for them. Christianity, it seems, was concerned with individual for forgiveness, not social justice, unquote. Susan Walter Waters, she was a young lady, she was molested by her older brother and an adult swim instructor that started when she was seven years old and continued through adolescence. To help deal with the abuse as an adult, she looked for help in Christian literature and in friends. And what she heard and read was that she should let go of her anger. She should, quote, forgive and forget, unquote. Because God forgave me, so I must forgive. Just let go of her anger. Susan said, quote, if I didn't forgive, I was being vindictive. The pressure to blindly forgive, particularly within the church teaching, can keep people stuck and unsafe. I believe this easy grace can allow abuse to thrive within families and institutions. Then Keller points out that Susan's term of easy grace, one could put Diedrich Bonhoeffer's famous phrase, cheap grace. Diana and Susan were called to forgive without conditions. 
a cheap grace where the power differentials between abuser and the abused remain unchanged and no justice was pursued. Ellie Wessel, is that how you pronounce that? Wessel? Okay. He was a, a survivor of the Nazi death camps. He spent his whole life in seeking out Nazis and having them persecuted for their crimes. Many think he is right. Others who advocate the no forgiveness model appeal not to mental health and self-respect, but to moral appropriateness. Still others argue that forgiveness is inherently opposed to the pursuit of justice and accountability of the perpetrators. Even at a particular university, the administration stopped a professor of psychology when he was asked to provide forgiveness therapy to students because they said it victimizes. You introduce another hurt into an already hurting heart. And then Jennifer Wright. She actually uh, is an op-ed editor out of the uh, Harper's Bazaar. This is in March 8th of 2018. And you can see what she says here. Should we forgive men accused of sexual assault? Women have rarely been in a position to be angry before. But we've rarely been in a position where our forgiveness was not automatically assumed before. Giving it out judiciously to those who earn it. That too is a kind of power we deserve. Very interesting quote. Couple of things. Notice the angry position she talks about, which is the one we just, I think we just covered. It's more the, the no forgiveness model. It's gonna be angry. Try to get revenge. Then there's the forgiveness was not automatically assumed position. I would say that's the non-conference non-conditional model. And then she, very interestingly, at the end of this, goes after the earn it, which we would call, or what Keller calls, the transactional forgiveness model. Now, this looks to be a pretty good model for between the non- conditional model and the no forgiveness model. However, merited, earned forgiveness is in the end a way of exercising power over somebody, and this is what Keller alludes to. It's really not forgiveness. It can be just another skillfully formed, skillful skillful form of revenge masquerading as virtue. Now, in response to this article, Martha Nussbaum, and she is a professor of the University of Chicago, concludes on this transactional forgiveness, says, quote, in it, in its classic transactional form, 
at any rate, forgiveness exhibits a mentality that is all too inquisitional and disciplinary. In the end, it is not really forgiveness. It's a gauntlet through which the perpetrator is forced to run until he or she is found sufficiently wounded. Now, where do you fall in your approach to forgiveness? It's a rhetorical question. Where do you fall? What are your assumptions and beliefs that form and support your ideas? I asked a lot of the young people, I say a lot, a few, our young adults, what is forgiveness? So I'm asking the older folks, what, are forgi what is forgiveness? That's an interesting. It's interesting that you term it that way, Rob, because a little further on, we may address something to that effect in some of these pressures and underlying assumptions on forgiveness. Riley, what is forgiveness? Okay. Say it a little louder. Okay. There's a there's there, there's an undercurrent in that that is going to be touched on in this that I think is very important. Um, any other ideas on forgiveness? I saw that I saw that hand, Angie. It, it was taken down too quickly. Okay. Thank you. There is multiple facets that Keller touches on in that vein. And it's going to be explored in this whole book. Uh, Seth will be coming up on chapter four. I think you're up next, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, this is, you're touching on something that I'll also quote on the ending of this, that I think as we go through uh, this book helps sort of unpack some of that that you just talked about. The biggest thing is, is just as we're discussing what forgiveness is among us, you can see sometimes it's sort of difficult to try to articulate what you really want to try to say or formulate in your minds because it has a lot of different facets. Let me go over. Yeah. And the last thing that he says, what does he say in that parable? Sure. The parable says, but you must forgive from your heart. That's right. 
So let me go over three models that we just talked about a little bit through these examples. The first one is the cheat grace model. And you can see it. It says the non-conditional forgiveness model in which all the emphasis is on the victim being therapeutically liberated from anger. Confrontation with the perpetrator may be involved, but only in and to the degree it helps the victim's inner healing, which is the only real concern. The little grace model, which is the transactional forgiveness model in which all the emphasis is on the perpetrator meriting forgiveness. The victim gives up anger only if the wrongdoer earns it through extensive acts of repentance and reparations. Then there's the no grace model. No forgiveness in, in which forgiveness is abandoned completely in favor of a pursuit of the justice for the victim. Those are the three that you'll see sort of come through in this study. Now, what are the pressures and what's the underlying assumptions that this comes from, this, uh, these different models that we're looking at? Well, one is, and this is looking at it from the therapy aspect of it. In modern therapy, cultural, not biblical, not uh, Christian th uh, therapy, but the modern therapy was designed to defend individuals against the community or outward influences. That fostered guilt-producing standards on them. All the emphasis is on the individual ex extricating themselves from the bonds of tradition, duty, an obligation to the community in order to pursue their personal aspirations and desires. A Freudian approach, according to Keller, in which the individual authenticity came to mean liberation from any norms that you do not choose or create yourself. The point, in some counselors' minds, is to support the patient against the world and not impose a moral burden or, quote, value of forgiveness on him, which would, in a sense, force him back into relationships he did not want. Now, looking at this therapeutic understanding and, and pressure, Dr. Dr. Jones, which is the president of Belmont University, I'm going to read this quote. The therapeutic turn of the church's psychological captivity in Western culture is perhaps the greatest reasons that we have such an impoverished contemporary understanding and practices of forgiveness in modern Western culture. If all that matters is individual autonomy, then forgiveness and reconciliation, which are designed to foster and maintain community, are of little importance. Jones goes on and argues, the church is to be a foretaste of the future world of love and perfect community under the lordship of, of Jesus Christ. That's quote unquote. He states that our sinful behavior inclines us to sin against each other and break relationships through the power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit we are given the ability to realize and see the beauty of these relationships within our body 
and throughout practices and disciplines of forgiveness and reconciliation can, partially now on this side of glory, see some of the beauty and joy that awaits us when we will see our Savior face to face. But the resources for healing relationships and strengthening community are being eliminated by the therapeutic culture that we live in. Do you think he's on to something here, maybe? We all tend to, we're swimming in a polluted stream, is the best way to put it. And many of these things we absorb and, and don't even recognize that it's being absorbed. Some of these concepts, some of this therapeutic culture. Another pressure that sort of puts an underpinning and assumptions for this, this ideas of forgiveness that we have just seen is the new shame and honor culture which he sort of quotes the cancer, cancel culture. Another belief or assumption behind the models of forgiveness is this new shame and honor culture, or what is called the cancel culture. Western cultures, and this is Keller speaking, Western culture has shifted from originally being an honor culture like the rest of the world to being what is called a dignity culture. Now, a new kind of shame culture is emerging, but it borrows from the therapeutic culture, just what we just read. The primary concern is to demand respect and affirmation of our own identity. In this, it mirrors the ancient pagan culture's desire for respect and honor. It mirrors century-old honor cultures, which demands and responds. It demands respect, it responds to slights. Now, if we have time, I will get to this. The ancient Greeks didn't even have a concept for forgiveness, just pity. And pardon, in the Greek's mind, just really means just excusing and not, forgive, uh, not forgiving. It's a little bit like what you were talking about, Rob. Keller goes on and says, however, modern therapy sees individuals as being oppressed and controlled by society's expectations, roles, and structures. Honor and more values are assigned to people by the more they have been victimized. The greater honor and more value they have. What then is develops is a, quote, shame and honor culture of victimhood. The further down the existing social ladder, the greater honor is possible. This new reversed honor culture is called the cancel culture. This creates a society of constant good versus evil conflict over the smallest issues as people compete for status as a victim or as a defender of victims. Forgiveness
is now seen as radically unjust and impractical. Now this is a side note that he sort of pursues a little bit. This has caused politics to be turned into a new religion, but one without any means of acquiring redemption or forgiveness. Rather than seeing others as mistaken, they are now regarded as evil, the heretics. Quote, the heretic must not be looked at, let alone engaged. And you can also lump into this, to a certain degree, microaggression ideas, where someone could say to, let's say, a, a person of Asian descent, well, you speak English really well. Well, that's an offense. What do you mean you think I don't, you think I'm stupid? Take offense. It's something that is actually meant to be a compliment. Critical race theory also carries some of this. In some ways, the, this idea of shame and honor culture of victimhood is encompassing all of these little things that I just mentioned. Now, so the results of this is respectful interaction with opponents and forgiveness of wrongdoers is part of the church's faith for us but not for them. But these traits are not part of either the ancient or modern or shame or honor cultures. In summary then, he says, the new shame and honor culture either produces a heavily inquisitional merited forgiveness approach to forgiveness, or at least the people to abandon forgiveness entirely. So, the models of forgiveness. The cheap grace model focused strictly on inner emotion and inner emotional healing for the victim to get on, pass, and move on. That it's sort of letting the perpetrator off the hook. The little grace model and the no grace model seek revenge, which can lead to endless cycles of re retaliation and vengeance. Now this is what Keller says, and Angie, you mentioned this. What lacks in all these models is a vertical dimension. But now we have another model. It's called the costly grace model. Tim Keller qu quotes, the experience of divine forgiveness brings profound healing. It is grounded in a faith sight of Jesus' costly sacrifice for our forgiveness that reminds us that we are sinners in need of mercy like everyone else. Yet it also fills up the cup of our hearts with his love and affirmation. This makes it possible for us to forgive 
the perpetrator and then go to speak to him or her seeking justice and reconciliation if possible. Now, however, we do not do, we do not do it for our sake, but for justice's sake, for God's sake, for the perpetrator's sake, and for the future victim's sake. The motivation is radically changed. Keller also says that it's not just the big forgivenesses like the ones you mentioned, Tom, Martin Luther King and Desmond Tutu, which you talked about last week, the big forgivenesses, big things done to them. And this is talking a little bit of what you said, John. But our need is to learn how to do everyday small forgivenesses. Keller says that we experience slights, letdowns, and inadvertent hurts, let alone deliberate wrongs done to us in small ways. That's sort of what you were describing. He talks about how we must learn to forgive silently when it bring, and when to bring the matter up and how to forgive even if the other person is reluctant to admit his or her fault. How do you gain that wisdom? It's sitting in my notes. But what Keller just quoted here, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through many of the facets that we see in the death, burial, and resurrection, in the crucifixion and the model thereafter of what he calls us to do in forgiveness and to forgive from our heart. Modern culture's response, an American culture which pits self-fulfillment and self-sacrifice will produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment. Most of us have therefore been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. In such a culture, forgiveness is seen as self-hating and revenge and anger are considered authentic. It's what I touched on earlier. We're swimming in a polluted stream. And some of our natural inclinations are gonna be this way. Keller contrasts in all of this a community, a, cor a, cor a community's corporate response to forgiveness. And this community is actually an Amish community. In 2006, 10 Amish children were taken hostage by a lone gunman in a schoolhouse at the Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Some of you all may remember this. Before the gunman committed suicide, he shot all 10 children. Five of them died. But within hours of the shooting, members from the Amish community visited both the killer's immediate family and his parents of the children. Expressing sympathy for their loss. 
The Amish uniformly express forgiveness of the murderer and his family. Many people were amazed at the forgiveness and love shown. But four years later, scholars went back and reviewed this incident. And they wrote about the incident and concluded that our secular society can no longer produce people who can handle suffering without retaliating the way the Amish did. Americans are committed to self-realization and self-happiness. Interests and needs always come first in our society. Keller, Keller concludes by, re, by quoting 1 Peter. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to do this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. 1 Peter 2, 23, 24, and then 3, 9. That's the New International Version. Keller states, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Keller concludes, this is the kind of community that produces forgiveness and the healing of relationships. It's a community that is what you hear sometimes from other speakers living in light of the gospel. In a way, this helps us unpack what that means, living in light of the gospel. Tom stated in chapter 1, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. That's the costly grace model. That's the model of the chart that's in the book. The vertical aspect between myself and God. And he goes on and talks about how that vertical aspect works. How God approached us. We were yet sinners when Christ died for us. We didn't earn this. We didn't do anything for it. He approached us first. He offered salvation. But by us going to him in forgiveness and receiving it is the basis upon where we can go horizontally 
to others. A personal example. <clears throat> my mom, some of y'all may know this. My mom and dad divorced and remarried each other twice. I moved my mom down to Austin. My brother and my dad stayed here. They, separate, they were divorced for a year. My father came and asked for forgiveness. They remarried. And within six months, it dissolved again. It injured my mom greatly. I don't know if I can get through this. Of course, it <clears throat> affected all of his children as well. My mom was very bitter, and it had lasting consequences for her. But because of her <clears throat> relationship with Jesus Christ, she knew she needed to forgive. And she would be talking, and she goes, I have forgiven your father. But in the talking, then you start hearing the grinding coming. She stopped, but I forgive her. And this went on for decades. Until close to the end of their life. My dad was remarried. Um, and my mom was too, for years. And she saw my dad, and she related this to me. She saw my dad in the grocery store. And he was, had his basket, and he was picking stuff out of the dairy counter. She said, I went up there with my cart and bumped his cart. He didn't just pull his cart back stuff in, and so she approached him again and bumped his car. He looked up and was like, oh my goodness, and had, my mom said, a very nice conversation. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are given the capability for forgiveness. It may take decades, depending upon what has happened to you. But he does give us the resources. He does give us the resources through the power of the Holy Spirit to truly forgive. The key to Christian forgiveness is the cross. I spent most of my time just on chapter 2. I'm supposed to cover chapter 3. This is chapter 3 in a nutshell. The Greeks didn't consider forgiveness as a virtue. 
They didn't recognize the virtue of, they did recognize the virtue of pity. This chapter's, of course, the history of forgiveness. The cardinal virtues in Greek culture were wisdom, justice, courage, and self-control, all of which tend to exclude or at least discourage the tender emotions of mercy and affection. Part for the Greek is not forgiving, but just excusing. It's sort of like making allowances. Instead of forgiving, it's more like, I excuse you. There are two reasons given in the book for this. The first, in the Greek mind, virtuous people will not be in need for forgiveness because they are people of moral excellence. Only inferior people need forgiveness, and why should the virtuous grant it? Greek, Greeks had no concept of the equal dignity of all people regardless of race, culture, or moral character. Second, the Greeks' view of the universe itself was one of being fundamentally impersonal. The ancient Greek philosophy of perfectionistic, that is, it required moralistic near perfection and showed no sympathy at all for those who could muster it. Christianity was the most persecuted religion in the first three centuries within the Roman Empire. Why did it grow so rapidly when it was so persecuted? Keller points out that the church did not seek retaliation against its perpetrators or persecutors. Keller quotes the third century bishop, Cyprian, said that Christians should not do it because Jesus both modeled and taught us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, but he also adds, Jesus came to Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant. And we are to follow him in this. But in his second coming, he'll be a judge. The persistence of forgiveness. Keller concludes in this chapter, why is there still a pers persistence of forgiveness in the culture within us, ourselves? He concludes that there remains a powerful human intuition about forgiveness. And he says that intuition is explained in Ecclesiastes 3, 10 and 11. Quote, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. If this world is all there is, I'm quoting Keller, if this world is all there is, and if nature has always been, and if nature has always just been a pattern of the strong eating the weak, then why does evil bother us at all? Why do we feel so deeply that there are real moral absolutes when we tell ourselves they cannot exist? 
Why do we feel that when others violate these absolutes, they deserve punishment, but when we violate them, we desire forgiveness? And he says this idea of eternity in the human heart. We cannot escape the knowledge of God in eternity. We cannot live without it. Questions? Comments? Angie? No. Right. That's true. And it is a reflection. It sort of makes you check your heart. Actually, I listened to Keller in a podcast that was discussing this book before he died. His comment was, I can't see how anyone can truly forgive without knowing the Father, without the gospel. Mike? A lot of ways that's true. In some ways that's true. Uh, not in the forgiveness that was grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, it, you know, so I agree with that. Sins sometimes have ripples. That's why God hates it so bad. John, oh, Rob. Well, that's two questions. <laughs> There's a couple of assumptions that are back behind that. I think um, the Amish have an idea of self, what do they call it, um, where they deny, they renunciation, community, community that's, in, that's a concept that they have communally in that way. So, and he goes through a lot of their, of their confession that they had. So I don't want to, there's an assumption there that there are gospel principles that are there. And I, also the aspect that eternity in the heart of man that he touches on. It's also part of that. John? The action part is first of all, I guess, right. Right, because the vertical, it pushed, it, it, automatically takes you outward to the horizontal. Okay, you got 20 seconds. 